Network Script Club. I'm Patricia Milton, and for this episode, our script was Martin Edwards' comedy, Pitch Perfect, from the Central Works 2013 season. Writer-director Martin Edwards has collaborated on television, film, and theater projects with wonderfully eclectic talents, including Lin-Manuel Miranda, Utkash Ambudkar, Jonathan Crisell, Evan Shapiro, and Annie Leibovitz. In his past life as an advertising copywriter and creative director, Martin produced award-winning and innovative campaigns for such companies as Adobe, Logitech, Chase, Bell South, Nokia, and Mercedes-Benz. Please note this episode contains salty language. Thanks for joining me today, Martin. Thank you, Patricia. Lovely to be here. Well, the first thing I wanted to talk about is a terribly old question, but about inspiration and kind of the first hook that gets a new place started for you. Can you talk about that and also about what inspired you to write Pitch Perfect? Uh, yes. Well, I will say it's, it's, it's an evolution. So Pitch Perfect is actually the first play I wrote. Now... And to, but that was a very long process, and it and and that was at the end of another very long process that really started with me suffering from uh, WMP white male privilege. You know, okay. for years I was just writing, you know, whatever the hell I wanted, and you know, I mean, my my hard drive is just full of these scripts that. You know, are just like empty vessels um, in in terms of like what they really say about me. Um, romantic comedies, family dramas. I mean, I shouldn't even say family because when I say family drama, it sounds like I'm talking about my family, but it wasn't even that. You know, they were like pastiches and they were, uh, it was like whoever, you know, I sort of saw and thought, ooh, I like that idea. I think it took growth. I always I always joke because I'm a Capricorn that everything just takes a really long time for me. And so it really wasn't until I I had kids and I was had like this really kind of big job uh, working at this uh, ad agency in New York that then flew me out to San Francisco that then, uh, you know, had me start a, a new agency from scratch with this lovely team of people and then summarily fired me. Oh. Yeah. I'm suddenly it was like, oh, I want, you know, I wanted to process that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was when I was like, oh, I process it through writing. Uh, and it would this, so this really was me starting to finally put some threads together. Um, I was having trouble finding work, but I was also being, you know, I, I got a decent severance. So I was kind of like kicking around a little bit. Um, my aunt, she she got this uh, thing in the mail about like uh, playwriting classes, and she was like, "Maybe you should try turning this into a play." I mean, it was kind of like amazingly her idea to sort of do it, and it was a terrible class, and I won't name names or anything, but <laughs> it was awfully pretentious. Um, it was this place in San Francisco, um, and uh, but what it did, you, you know, it it kind of got interesting because until then I'd only been writing in the screenplay format, and I went to NYU Film School, and uh, and so I was very comfortable with the film format. But I there were things about playwriting that really interested me. I, mm-hmm. I loved the discipline of it. You know, this idea that like you're in a room and you you know there, there are limitations, especially when you're coming from film, where theoretically you can kind of shoot anything. I actually really took that to heart. I mean. 
I want this to be tight. I want it to be sort of like one or two locations. <laughs> All that said, what drives me is things that make me angry. Like when I get when I get angry, that's what I that's what I start writing about. With well, the things that I take personally, mm-hmm. there's not just like oh here's just oh, the, oh I read this article and this is just so fascinating to me. Yes, and Martin, let me just say I think I think anger gives you a, a propulsion to your comedy is an engine for it, which I think is necessary in comedy. You certainly don't want a comedy that ambles along. Absolutely. And I think it's very interesting that the characters in Pitch Perfect betray each other. I mean, a lot of the reversals that happen are people completely stabbing the other person in the back. Do you want to talk about your work in advertising and what you wanted to express about that in the play? Yeah, there's a lot of paradoxes, right? It's a tremendously creative environment, and yet, at the same time, incredibly frustrating. Um, I was definitely a better writer coming out of advertising because, you know, to your point about ambling comedy and all this, uh, you know, in advertising, everything is about cutting and cutting and cutting till you get a message down to the absolute, you know, most efficient uh way possible and that's exactly how i approach uh my creative writing also the the thing about comedy (laughs) is really hard um i think drama is way easier to write i i know i'm writing bad comedy when i read it back and it just reads like a drama to actually make it funny it is so much tearing your hair out hitting your head against the wall uh pacing back and forth telling yourself you're just a terrible writer and somewhere in that, you manage to get somewhere. It is in the rewriting. It's, it's for me, I, that's all I do. I, I, I just like, it was so interesting when I went back and I hadn't read Pitch Perfect in years. And I, I, I sat down with a pen and I don't know what the hell I was thinking because immediately I started just like editing it and being like, <laughs> what the hell? And so I finally had to stop and just be like, okay, you just need to read this. You're not trying to rewrite it. Although at the end of it, I was like, wow, I would, there was, parts in it I would love to go at again uh-huh. but what I did I mean what was lovely about it it was it was <laughs> I was very entertained by it so I was like okay good that part is, has held so that's great but going back to that question of like what in advertising the, you know it's very much about sort of the tre- in being in the trenches versus the leadership and my whole thing was you know as a creative I was a creative director a copywriter and then a creative director I very much felt that I was in the tre- trenches because ultimately advertising is content right so you have the people who, you know, sort of wine and dine the clients and make lots of promises and sort of sit in their ivory towers. But then they are making promises that can only be delivered by people like me. Mm-hmm. And people like me never feel the kind of respect that <laughs> and not to sound mm-hmm. like I'm just like demanding respect, but it's kind of amazing the uh, the disconnect that like I went in, I had my team we did great stuff, and there were always these meetings going on between all these, you know, the account people, and 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 we always, we were, you know, we were in San Francisco, and we always had leadership coming in from New York. And was I ever invited to those? No, it was just like this massive, like again, disconnect between these two camps. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I, I really, you, you know, <laughs> that for me is just like a metaphor for like the, the world, you know, this is like, you know, the, the majority of us are like, uh, you know, oppressed and, and, and there's all these systems trying to hold people down. 
And then there are these few people making these decisions and it's like all, you know, they're, they're kind of ruining it for everybody. And, and what happened, so in Pitch Perfect, you kind of have Roger, who is the creative, and he has certainly, oh my God, he's got so much baggage, as do I. I totally admit to that. I'm a terribly flawed person, but I do feel like I'm a pretty good creative person. And if it wasn't for me, I don't know what the hell you're selling in those meetings. And so you put, you, then you put on top of that the fact that, you know, they fired me. So it, I was just hurt. I was freaking hurt. Yeah. And so I wanted to get at sort of the personalities, you know, and so Roger is, yes, Roger is me. And, um, and Caitlin is sort of, well, you see, Caitlin, I, I, I became actually, originally I wanted her to be more like this. There was this one account person who we, I had a very fiery relationship with, not, 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 not personal, just, just, um, professional. She was always pushing me. And I think some good stuff came out of it, but I was always like, you know, I was always like, you're a very unhappy person and I'm a happy person. And, 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 you know, why, why, you know, why is that? Like, what is driving you to be here? I mean, the one thing I always notice is that the only people in advertising who are really professionals are actually kind of on the account side, because I find that a lot of the creatives are, and, 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 and I believe this is, this actually is in the play in, in the second uh, act when Roger says that, you know, advertising is like the safety net that caught, that caught him. And it, it's because, you know, I, I was a, you know, as a filmmaker and as a writer, I, I was living in New York and really wasn't getting by. And, and it really was that kind of tip um, that I got from a friend who was like, you know what, you should be working in advertising because they love people who've got good ideas and they pay really well. And that's how I kind of got into it, you know? And when I got there, it was like musicians and filmmakers and novelists and painters and all the, it was what, and they were all, we were all kind of sheltering from the storm, you know, of, of reality of, of like trying to be successful in our art, but really getting beat up by it. And yet here we were able to work this job and, and pay the rent and sort of exist. And I did exist as like a, you know, I was like an indie filmmaker. I, I, I made a, you know, while I was working in New York in advertising, I also, I made a feature film um, that was actually one of the first films to stream on Netflix. I went to all this like really weird off, off Broadway theater. I had all these like crazy artist friends and, and it was wonderful. It all was, it all worked out. It was working out beautifully. And, and, and then, and then on the other side, you have like the suits. I mean, this is like classic stuff. This is like what Hollywood writers complain about. You know, you've got the creatives and then you've got the business people and the business side of advertising is very similar to that is that those guys got MBAs. They went to school. They're there with purpose. And I think that's, where, and I think that's where the happiness and the unhappiness somehow comes from because mm -hmm. most of the happy people were the creative people. Yeah. So Roger is the creative. Caitlin was supposed to be kind of like this hard ass executive uh, uh, sort of account person, but I kind of softened her because I just kind of, I don't know, I liked her character. I, I wanted her to be sort of a centering force for Roger. Plus we've got Maggie. Maggie sort of, I guess I invested with all this, with all my kind of, uh, a little bit of my vitriol because she's angry for good reason. She's angry um, because she's been uh, she's funny enough. She's also misunderstood. I mean, you know, Roger has basically thrown her under the bus. They were a couple and they were also trying to work together. And when it stopped working, it started to go to hell. And and she feels like Roger kind of took advantage of that. 
they were both artists, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And then, of course, there's Bob. And I guess Bob is sort of the ultimate leadership. But he, he represented for me something that was much higher, which was the real disconnect, the, the real ivory tower. I, I suppose we could say that there's really three levels in advertising because, you, you know, you've got creatives and you have account people. But then above that is all those executives that are jetting around and, and trying to make big things happen. And those guys really did strike me as being the most disconnected from what we were doing. Yeah, well, it's certainly hard on the people working in that environment. Absolutely. Let me ask you about your work in the Central Works Workshop. So you wrote Pitch Perfect there, your first play. And then I've had the opportunity and the pleasure of being in some workshops where you have worked on other plays. So can you talk a little bit about that and how the workshop works for you as far as your writing process? Well, so I can actually, yeah, let's put some context to that. So, uh, you know, I, I mentioned early on that I had taken this first uh, writing class and it was very, like I said, they flew this, you know, I'm not going to name names because honestly, I'm not trying to, you know, I really don't care about protecting the innocent or anything like that, but I just couldn't be asked. I mean, what whatever he was, I don't really care. He was really fucking pretentious and it was actually kind of funny when I think back to it, you know, but one thing he said that really struck me that actually made me feel better about a writer is he... He talked a lot about how, uh, you know, he also had a, you know, he was like, writing is hard. And, and, and I find myself procrastinating all the time. And I was like, oh, I do that too. So I guess that's something we've got in common. <laughs> um, but anyway, so the, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I met Gary. Um, he was doing a class at um, Berkeley Rep. And, and I, tr- I tried to get into that for like one summer and didn't. And then I got into the next summer. That's when I really started working more intently on the script and so he invited me to the workshop uh which is an invite thing so that's how he found out about me that's the central works writers workshop and that's gary Graves. yes exactly thank you this actually ties in the procrastination thing and it ties in motivation like i said like writing is actually hard for me um because i set such a stupidly high bar for myself that motivation becomes a real problem and Obviously, if I'm if, if something's going well, it's great fun, right? Like you know when <laughs> when you do when you do write a scene and you're like that is fucking good, like that's great, like then I'm just mm-hmm. awesome. But most of the time, like I said, it's very much me hitting my head against the wall, and um, and so structure can help, right? Because if someone says, "Oh, you got to have pages to show me next Saturday." Uh, that is the other thing that yes. really drives me. <laughs> so, so regardless, you know, you know, the 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 workshop does a lot of things. It brings together really strong writers who all have great insight, um, and all of that is super important. And I I, I put all that at the same level. Um, but I have to say, and I think everyone would agree with me here, the thing that we all cherish the most is the fact that. You know, if we've agreed to to show pages on a particular date, we have to show pages. And that is going Mm -hmm. to focus us and it's going to like kick us into gear. Gary, you know, he's he's very good at um, because, again, you've got eight writers in there. Right. So that's eight egos. And everyone's, you know, everyone's got their own sort of experience and a different point of view. And the way that he sort of manages that so that everyone is heard and 
and mm-hmm. feelings aren't hurt. Yeah, we're all aspiring right. to something that's in our minds that is never going to be what exactly the way it comes no, out. No, I, 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 I think I that's think. true. I mean, that I've never met an artist who said, oh, well, well, that was how I thought it would be. That's right. I mean... I, I swear it's often like, well, that was that wasn't bad or that was actually pretty good. But but Christ, that wasn't what I thought I, I, you know, I meant to do. Yeah. And I think that that is actually being at peace with that is a tremendous uh, when you get to that point. It's it's actually very freeing. I mean, who ultimately decides if something is good or not? I mean, is it really the creator or is it the people who watch it? I mean, the number of times that people come up to me and been like, oh, I love this and I love the the fact that you this, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that wasn't even what I intended at all. But you, cle- <laughs> <laughs> you clearly were, you saw that and then you actually took the, the time to tell me that. And so who am I? Jesus, like, I really am like, great, fabulous. You know what? I'm all in. I'm all in. This is what I love so much about live theater is that it's kind of co-created with the audience. I mean, the audience brings, each person brings their whole background and their own opinions and their own, you know, experiences that they have. And then everybody kind of goes through the same experience together in real time. And there aren't any other arts that do that. Where the actors, you're the actors are breathing the same air as the audience. I just really love it. I think that's that's particularly powerful for the actor because, and I've done a little bit of acting, but it, the ability to kind of be aware of what's going on in the room and even adjust to it or you know sort of lean into it, yes, is pretty amazing. I find that as the writer of live stuff and you know it's like there's there's a little more of a kind of powerlessness uh to it because <laughs> it, it, it's sort of like well this is all just happening around me and and th- this room really likes this player it doesn't like this player. it's not like i can jump up on the stage and go guys can you give me five minutes and let me just make some adjustments to the scene and then we'll go again you know you can't but but in some ways the actors do have the power to you know, to modify, and I'm not talking about the language, but even the tone or the pace or whatever. And that is that is incredible to watch. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about working with actors. Sure. As a, as a writer, nothing is more exciting than when actors start to read your work. Because until then, it's, it's mostly in your head and you're, you know... You, you there's a lot of trust right uh, even if you're sharing it with other writers or other people like until it's in an actor's mouth you just can't truly judge it you know a good actor is going to just do things with it that you are kind of hoping that they do that you kind of imagine in your head but you really don't know but then to be able to work with the actors who actually are going to play that role is that is just ridiculous because then you can you know if you after a couple of read-throughs and you start to assign that actor in your head to that role, I often find myself going back and making adjustments to the writing mm-hmm. to write to them. No matter what the medium, whether it's uh, theater or TV or film, every writer and director is always hoping for those moments. And sometimes it doesn't happen. I mean, in theater, I think it often does, but certainly 
you know, it's all about budget and time. And there are times, you know, when actors come in and within a day or two, they have to be, you know, working those lines like in front of a camera or whatever. So it it was just, um, it was so wonderful. I, I've never directed theater. I only direct film TV work. Mm-hmm. So that was really fascinating because, you know, what I had said earlier about what attracted me to writing a theater piece was uh, wanting the discipline of, of making something that only happened in two locations. And so, you know, this play, which runs about 80 or 75 minutes, there's there's two sets. And so you've got to, you know, you've got to be moving people all over the place to keep it engaging. And also, you know, you want their actions to sort of represent what's being said and, and, and sort of what's, you know, kind of being dealt with in that moment. Um, and so it was just really interesting because it's like you go in there knowing that you want that limitation, but then there's the actual work. And to be working in this sort of small space, uh, the whole the whole blocking thing was, was really um, uh, fascinating to me. Uh, because you know, in in film and TV, you uh, the camera, you, you know, you b- basically control everything the the viewer sees, including point of view, right? Like 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 basically, angle. It's not just like I want necessarily uh, this to be a one shot or a two shot, but also like what direction are we looking at, and what you know is, is something happening in the background. But in theater. Basically, everyone is seeing everything all the time. Mm-hmm. And and so blocking takes on this whole other kind of... It's a beautiful ballet. And the fact that it all then has to be sort of like played back in real time with no sort of... There's no cuts or anything. Uh, I, 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 loved, I, loved, I loved that whole process. Since you're talking about the difference between film and uh, stage... Yes. This... Pitch Perfect, you expanded it into a 2018 prime comedy series called Bartlett with a stellar cast. So why don't you, can you talk a little bit about the challenges or the opportunities that that presented for you? You know, the chance to sort of take something and then to, this goes back also to me talking about like always wanting to rework the work, right? And make it better. So that was, that was the huge opportunity but then also the challenge because suddenly there's a lot more people involved and there's opinions there and uh and we kind of had to work more as a team mm-hmm. uh even before you know we shot or anything so uh you know Anthony Veneziali who played Roger in the sh- in the TV in the in the in the Amazon Prime show um he had some very, very you know basically he was like well I'll only play the character if we if we you know we sort of make some adjustments like softening him up and uh Chrissy Mazio who plays uh Maggie was like well in the play you know she sort of comes in later and she feels like secondary and so there was a lot of I did a lot of reworking to sort of level the playing field and so in some ways we actually redressed uh some flaws in the play when I wrote Pitch Perfect, again, and you know, I don't mean to make ex- well, maybe I do. Maybe I'm making excuses. I don't know. I just wanted to make something that was funny and brash and f- in your face, and you know, had a, a decent amount of fucks per minute, as we called them. Like, I just wanted something bold. There's a, there's actually kind of a Me Too-ish, sexist kind of thing going on in the play that I didn't really pay too much attention to. But when when we had a chance to make it remake it uh there was a lot of talk about like well let's let's give maggie a, even more equity it's not just that she sticks it to roger let's give her 
let's just give her more dimension and and the ability to to do that i think was 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 exciting and i think in the end it's in some ways i think the ending of the tv show it's it's a little softer and it's warmer uh and so it loses a little bit of the edge um and i do miss that Mm-hmm. I have to say every time you know I do love the ending of the the, the TV show kind of ends uh hopeful for everybody in a way where I think the the play kind of leaves you like what you were saying earlier with the double like who's going to get double crossed again in the plays it, people who will read it um the whole like sub story of Bob and his prostate cancer that I I would like to address that really quickly because we were struck. We wanted to give Bob some sort of crucible. Like, like I wanted him to be struggling with something. It's just incredibly entertaining to watch people, uh, smart people, broken people, sort of attack each other. But you know, at some point, you kind of want to maybe go a little deeper on it. And so I was like, man, we got to give Bob something. And you know, it's like, is he an alcoholic? Is he this? Is that? And I swear to God, I feel like we pulled. Finally, at the end of the day, we were just like, "It's okay. We're gonna we're gonna do this prostate cancer storyline," and I never, you know, I always felt like it was it was kind of last minute ish. Um, the actor who played Bob, but embraced it. You know, he's like, "No, I'm good with this. This is good. I can really work with this." And so he made it on stage more work harder than it does on the page to be honest and this goes back to what you're saying about the actor because the other thing the actor can do is they can fucking bail you out because it's like oh yeah they're doing things i didn't think of that's fine but i i was like guys i I really want bob to have this problem and they're like fine we're gonna do it and we're gonna sell it and i think we sold it in in the in the play but then again in the show we were able to be like oh uh, let's actually work harder on that. And, um, you know, Don Reed, fabulous actor, came in and he was like, you know what's funny? My uncle was the first black uh, uh, managing director of an ad agency in America. It was in New York, a big agency, and he was gay. And he's and I've been sort of working on a character. And so he brought he brought a lot of that work to um, to the show. Really great. Well, I wanted to ask you about, since we've been through this, what is it, 18 months or whatever of this pandemic? And you said you're working on something, so I would be so interested to know uh, what you've been inspired to write about. The funny part is that writers are like, oh, I'm going to go lock myself in a hotel for a month and write something amazing or go up to the woods or whatever. The pandemic was kind of that, right? It, it, it put on our, uh, it gave us time to do stuff that we should have done something with. Mm-hmm. But I didn't do that much writing. I embraced, I, I, I wanted to support my family. My three boys, who are all teenagers, were at home. We built, a, uh, one, Cameron and I built a cabin in our back garden so that he had a place to do his, um, you know, Zoom schooling. Because the two other boys had taken, and my wife, who was teaching from uh, home, had taken up all the other rooms. And so it, the pandemic really became about sort of supporting the family. And that was incredibly uh, actually satisfying. Mm-hmm. How nice. We just had to kind of, at the drop of a hat, sort of change everything up. Um, and it was exciting and weird. And oh, yeah. I had this thing brewing. I had been talking to a producer about doing a show about Brexit based on a play that I had started to write actually at the Central Works Writer Workshop. 
one thing I love about playwriting as I approach it, again, going back to the discipline, is that even if I'm thinking about a project for something other than as a live theater piece, I like it as a sandbox for exploring character. I find that if I, you know, so this is the the piece that I'm working on now is very much an ensemble uh, comedy. And so if you give me a bunch of characters and, and I have to hold myself to keeping them in a room or in a couple of locations, I tend to then have to focus sort of on the characters. And so I start, you know, before the pandemic, I had I'd started to work it as a play, got pretty far down it, and basically had something that could have worked. Mm-hmm. My mother thought it was great, but she was like, oh my God, you could put this up now. I was like, I couldn't put this up now. I you know, get laughed out of the theater. But, you know, there was something there. We, you know, again, I was talking about uh, starting to write it as a TV show. And then the pandemic happened and ev- everything just went to hell. The TV industry got so messed up by the pandemic. Um so many executives left a lot of the indie side of TV. So basically, you know, you've got all these networks, but, but, uh, and these streaming platforms, but the stuff is often made out, out of house by independent production houses. And a lot of them closed uh, a lot because, you know, they, they, it's a very hand to mouth. I mean, Mm -hmm. but when no one's got anything to shoot it very quickly, that just becomes a lot of empty offices and and people sort of like having these existential crisis anyway fast forward pandemic ends i come out of it and basically a deal happens to do it initially as a podcast uh, an eight-part audio play so then i start working on that and then basically what happens is another production company got wind of it and so now it's looking like it's going to be both first produced as a podcast and then as a TV show. Oh, I said okay. it's kicking my ass because it's eight episodes, all half hour. That's a lot of content. You know, I don't have a writer's room. It's a very personal project. I'm tackling Brexit, which really pisses me off. But I'm doing it as a satire where Wales... So Wales basically secedes from the UK in a vote similar to the UK seceding from Europe, they basically have shot themselves in the foot. But what I use it as, you know, this ridiculous concept is, of course, to just explore what I see as the issues of Brexit. And this goes back to the whole oppressed thing. You know, you've got people who have been struggling generation after generation of working class who have been told that like their jobs are being stolen first by immigrants and then being shipped off, off overseas. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is, you know, they're basically being taken advantage of race, you know, doing these like racist dog whistle of like, oh, this is all immigrants fault, but really saying, oh no, a global Britain is going to be great. You know, we're going to be free to do this. But what's actually happening, the people voting for Brexit are like, yeah, you're right. All these like immigrants are like stealing our jobs, and and what happens after Brexit ha- and and they kick all the immigrants out? No one wants those jobs. I think it's very unfortunate. So I wanted to, you know, again out of anger and out of you know being English myself, but actually spending a lot of my childhood in Wales, mm-hmm. I wanted to do something that was personal, and I just wanted to sort of process it, right? I wanted to work it out, and I and 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 I felt like the, uh, going back to the authenticity thing. You know, my time, my the time that I spent in Wales as a kid was really very powerful to me. They're very strong memories, and and so I felt like I could set this story there about a guy who basically comes back to Wales after many years and has to sort of live through this. 
yeah, it just seemed like the thing to do. And, and I've, I've, I've been enjoying it very much. It is, it is a lot of hard work. You know, because satire is tough, right? Because you don't want it to be too on the nose, but then what is what is on the nose? Maybe satire itself is on the nose, you know? The thing that's happening in real life is, like, way beyond satire half the time. So it's exactly it Yes, yeah. exactly. And that's why I think you know, no one's really, no one's doing, from what I understand, like, there are really no Brexit shows out there for that reason. I think it's very hard to attack the thing straight on, right? I mean, I think this is true of anything, Um it's exactly what you said. So it, I think the thing that I'm bringing to this conversation is the fact that, like, it's Brexit in sheep's clothing. So I'm calling it Wexit, right? Whale's exit. And there's something very um, uh, both charming and disarming. And good satire is when someone watches and thinks they're talking about everyone other than them, mm-hmm. even though it's them that, that's being talked about. And, and I think that that is you know, that's what I'm trying to do here, right? Is it's, it's, it's very watchable. It's funny, but we're kind of calling out the bullshit and saying, you know, maybe there's a better way to move into the future than everyone just retreating into their tribes. Right. Well, it has been a very big pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Wonderful. Okay. Thanks, Martin. Thanks again for joining us in the Central Work Script Club. We can't wait until we can all be together live again. Until then, please visit our website, centralworks.org, for audio plays, the Yay podcast, information about our upcoming season, and more. Bye for now. Bye for now.